I V M. Hey, it's been another great week on IVM. If you aren't following us on social media, please do. We're IVM Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Cyrus Says This Week, we have Satyanshu Singh, filmmaker, writer, and head of content development for AIB First Draft. His journey from doctor to writer is a fascinating one. On the scene and the unseen, Amit is joined by Pranay Kotastane and Hamsini to decode Pakistan's experiences with democracy. On Keeping It Queer this week, Naveen speaks to Parmesh Sahani, author and head of the Godrej India Culture Lab. Hustle Science marks the season finale with fitness YouTuber Abhinav Mahajan. And on Geek Fruit, Tejas and Jishnu give you the greatest hits from this year's San Diego Comic Con. It's time for you to catch the third story from Croc Tales with Anand Sivakumaran. This one is called Freddy Ki Fiat Ho Gai Flat. And now, on to your shows. There's a need for a new world order, but it has different characteristics in different parts of, of the world. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. There cannot be peace. Without first a great suffering, the greater the suffering, the greater the peace. The end you've always feared is coming. It's coming, and the blood will be on your hands. Everyone from Henry Kissinger and Donald Trump to Solomon Lane in the new Mission Impossible movie cares about the end of the old world order. Today, we are going to envision a new world order and our place in it. This is the Pragati Podcast and I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. Every week, my co-host, Pavan Srinath and I get together to discuss policy, international relations and economics. The latest Mission Impossible movie got me wondering, what is a world order? How is it changing? Why is it changing? And most importantly, what should India be doing about it? Our guests for the day are Pranay Kotastani and Anirad Khaniseti, researchers at the Takshashila Institution. Pranay also hosts a Hindi podcast called Pulia Bazi that you should check out if you haven't already. We're going to break down the world order. Not literally, of course. But first, here's a short commercial break. Some time ago, five successful restauranteurs came together to form the Kolaba Cartel. The founders of the table, Gauri Devi Dayal and Jay Yusuf, partnered with the founders of Woodside Inn, Abhishek Hunawar, Pankil Shah and Sumit Gambhir to open a new restaurant in Kolaba. If you've ever dreamed of opening a restaurant or love eating out, you want to listen in. The Kolaba Cartel. This exclusive 10-part series is hosted by Gauri Devi Dayal and Amit Doshi. Catch new episodes of The Kolaba Cartel every Monday and Thursday on the IVM Podcasts app, website or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi Pranay, welcome to the show and hi Anirudh, welcome to the show for the first time. Thank you, Pavan. Thanks, Pavan. Pranay, we've been hearing a lot about the idea of a world order and that we are heading into a new world order. And you and Anirudh and also I think Anupam have worked on a discussion document as well on you know what new world order we might be heading to and what India must do and so on. But what is this business? What's the world order? Yeah, yeah, the world order has become, you know, this word which is dominating. I think if you do a Google Trends analysis, world order would have suddenly shot up over the last two, three years. And everyone, the common metaphors that you hear are world order is in a flux. There are fundamental changes happening, shifts happening and all that. So uh, let's get to what this uh, definition is. And I want to explain it at sort of a few levels. Uh, at the very basic level, world order means the concept which is held by a region, civilization or state about what is a just arrangement of the distribution of power across the world. Okay, so that's it. It is very similar to something called uh, a world view. Okay, now this is one level. The second level is the what we call international order. 
international order refers to the practical application of what you or i as a state might feel to the substantial parts of the world and the third one is a regional order which means when these ideas of just arrangements of powers are only applicable in a substantial manner to a region and that's what you call regional examples of this would be an international order would be something which we call the westphalian order or a liberal international order which will be i'm sure we'll discuss in greater detail later regional order would be things like when we say uh, a chinese order around the areas which china dominates now or or india sort of being the yeah. the biggest power in the indian subcontinent yes absolutely okay so uh, tell us more about this so what would define a good world order hmm. so yeah. first of you said that it's like a world view right hmm. so if there are a lot of people who believe that uh, you know globalism is driven by big corporations and america is uh, you know this great source of evil and modern exploitation in the world that constitutes a world view right so hmm. is that the same as a world order or yeah how does it work so uh, uh, there is a very good book called world order by henry kissinger which actually tries to answer some of these questions so if i have to just bring in his views on this and then we'll add the insights that we had uh, when we wrote our paper so for kissinger the world order is basically determined by two factors one is legitimacy and one is power okay he says both are required and both are different yeah both are absolutely different when we say legitimacy uh, legitimacy means whether you accept whatever status i have, right so you there should be a broader feeling that uh, let's say uh, the legitimacy of us as a dominant power Uh, the legitimacy exists because most of the countries are okay with it and they are okay with the way us is functioning so that is one idea power is just my ability to influence what you do irrespective of what you think okay so you, you might not necessarily agree that it is legitimate or not but if i have the stick i can make you do what i want or i hope so okay so in that sense is legitimacy like you don't have to use coercion to get someone to agree with you but people sort of broadly agree with your principles and ideas and so therefore you are exactly yeah it's like they agree to your principles so much that they don't question the, why those principles are there in the first place at all for example now democracy is what us pushed as a value that should be there across the world that was it's a new idea right just uh, it was not even there in the europe when europe was a dominant power in the world but once us came into being the dominant power it's become such a legitimate idea that everyone across the world always talks about democracy even china talks about democracy in whatever weird Single conception they have yeah so it the legitimacy is that way and that's why i have actually argued that great powers aspire not just for power but they aspire for authority which is a combination of legitimacy and power Uh, so let me get back to legitimacy and power what does legitimacy do you might ask right so legitimacy does not necessarily mean that there will be no conflict at all but what legitimacy will do is if there are challenges to a world order they will happen as adjustments to the existing order rather than fundamentally changing it for example we have in a world order which is determined by free trade or that is a narrative right free trade democracy etc human rights human rights so even when china is challenging it china is not doing it uh, these are all legi- highly legitimate concepts so china is also trying to adjust its own values are around these are talking in the same language rather than saying that we are we don't agree to these principles at all in fact now it is championing free trade like you saw then second idea is power the big idea right so what does power do you might ask so power again if there's a balance of power it doesn't mean again there won't be any conflict but what a balance of power will do is if there is fundamental competition to an existing order many countries can align and then you know suppress another state which is questioning a particular order so that's the value of balance of power and legitimacy these so, are so could you things. argue that like india was this trying to rally the third world when when us and ussr were uh, the big uh, powers mm. but effectively the those two powers either co-opted coerced or suppressed this third world from really be, being very 
important or powerful absolutely yeah in the sense if you see it was a very legitimate idea you know who uh, it was a decolonization period everyone thought that these states shouldn't be under colonial rule so legitimacy was high but the power was absolutely low right, right. So, and and not just that there were great orators nehru and nasser and others were these considered leaders but ultimately they yes. didn't have power yeah. Yeah. so legitimacy has a lot to do with belief right yep. um so when we say uh, say the us's invasion of iraq hmm. uh, is often questioned the us had the power to do it hmm. but people didn't really believe why the us went to do it they didn't believe the narrative of weapons hmm. of mass destruction hmm. which is why us's legitimacy in this action was questioned am i right absolutely yeah in fact a lot of actions of the us have been questioned because of the legitimacy part right and it's not just because of trump or anyone it's these series of actions in iraq in uh, afghanistan etc which have come to question right when us stands for a liberal order free trade sovereignty hmm. these are the principles which have made it a legitimate power and when it itself violates it there have been questions raised and that has happened over the last one and a half decades that, that's an interesting point if we can connect it to what pawan was saying about how america is perceived as a sort of evil imperialist power which whose corporations are just pushing globalization on everyone else's throats uh that's essentially what we're seeing is the legitimacy of the us as this unquestioned leader of the free world sort of thing is increasingly being questioned and especially after the election of donald trump um the less said about him the better uh, we can really see that it's not just being questioned by people on random forums on the internet but also by other global leaders who are trying to step up and assume the legitimate mantle of the us as a so called leader of the world yeah i mean we had amaya nayak on the show and something that we were talking about is um if america is reneging on its treaty with iran why should north korea have any belief in striking up any sort of fair deal right exactly. and this goes back to what we're talking about legitimacy yeah. and corroding the legitimacy of the us if you think about this uh, the british empire often went out of its way to present itself as an honest broker whether they were actually honest or not is obviously very very debatable but that's the image they tried to cultivate on the global stage especially among european powers why is that legitimacy okay yeah uh, so this was what kissinger said right it hmm. was only in the realm of power and politics but the way we visualize it that there is another important axis to look at so and that axis is of economics okay so uh, one axis is how the uh, power is spread across the world which is just politics in which you will have the what are the possible combinations a multipolar order in which there are many states many regional powers across mm-hmm. the world a unipolar world in which you had the us then there is a bipolar world which is competing so let's say there's a new cold war scenario where us and china are again uh, at loggerheads with each other or us and china can be cooperating with each other those are the two extremes so these are some of the arrangements around the political axis but then the second important factor which i think kissinger misses and that's what we bring in our analysis about what happens to economy across the world i think anirudh can talk about it so um, we've conceptualized geoeconomics in four different ways so we've thought of a low growth scenario a new recession like what we saw in the 1920s in the usa a low growth scenario which we call the secular stagnation which is what you see in the world after 2008 we have a new economic boom and finally we have a great disruption which is my personal favorite because one where essentially ai and technology massively changes so the structure of the world so basically technology and innovation yes. sort of change the existing paradigms as we know it exactly so this is sort of mark andreessen's thesis right software is eating the world the so sort of this idea that all growth now will come from software not like mm. computing between the 1950s and the 2000s the technological advancement and sort of economic output was mm. uh, incumbent on hardware growth yeah right mm-hmm. now it's to software uh, but, yeah right but as a different change with like it's not just about ai for example it is also a great disruption scenario is also about changing the most important resources that uh, will drive the world so mm-hmm. for example today we see uh, it's the 
the petrol the petrochemical uh, resources which are the most important ones right uh, earlier it was coal then it was the area of petroleum. and increasingly also silicon correct so now this great disruption scenario might be a place in which rare metal earths would be the most important resource exactly. so there will be a contestation for that so it will still not be just software it will still be uh, you know how can you make the best chips or the fastest chips or best solar panels or whatever but and it's it, also about who develops the ip for the next generation of gene editing therapies yes. the next generation of antibiotics everything right? yeah yeah so wait you guys have come up with these political scenarios and these economic scenarios but they will meet somewhere right you could have a great disruption and a multipolar world mm-hmm. or a great disruption and a unipolar world yes. so how do you figure out the combinations of these So um, I'm very glad you brought up the great disruption in the multipolar world because actually one of my one of the most interesting new world orders that we've thought of and we call it digital westphalia because think about a world where conflict is now done through technology you no longer have conventional conflict you probably won't have these open warfare but you will have any number conflict through through cyber warfare essentially and the kind of opportunities it presents for india are absolutely fascinating which hopefully we'll get into later but coming to the intersection that that hamsini talked about we visualize this as a table right so when i talked about geopolitics being about global polarity right so on one side of the axis we have a unipolar world with the us being the sole superpower and on the other end we have a multipolar world in terms of geoeconomics on one end we have the low growth great recession sort of scenario and on the other end we have the great disruption scenario so what you have is um five different uh, geopolitical scenarios geopolitical trends sorry and four different geoeconomic trends and at their intersection we have 20 world orders and this table is actually in our new world order research paper which i highly recommend any listeners check out okay wait let's take a step back we've had world orders before right you guys are proposing 20 possible world orders but what about world orders that have existed before today hmm yeah uh, so many world orders have existed before so uh, think of it let's divide it into broader trends okay so okay. Uh, the world view or now when i'm talking about uh, world order here i'm just meaning the first definition about what just a region or civilization feels about the just arrangements or balance of power so the first world order in that sense was the chinese order right not the first one but one of the most important mm-hmm. ones so what did the chinese uh, world order entail so you you remember these word the middle kingdom mentality mm-hmm. the central mm-hmm. in all that the mandate from, from heaven here. yeah all that stems from this conception so the idea was that the one who ruled the chinese uh, society the son of heaven was the mandate uh, he had the mandate from the heaven and there was no parallel to that person from across the world no one could question him so in fact very interesting thing happened when uh, englishmen came to meet this chinese emperor and they said we represent the british emperor they said what what are you are you joking like there is no other emperor the only emperor with the is our emperor so in fact there is a beautiful letter mm-hmm. in howard french's book which the chinese write to the british and the way they admonish the british is just too good like they just say what the hell you guys don't even exist why are you calling yourself emperor the only way you can come and trade with us is if you accept that we are the numero uno okay mm-hmm. so that was that think of this as currently when we talk about trade barriers right this was the ultimate trade barrier the chinese knew that they have a huge market everyone wants to trade with them they knew that mm-hmm. so they just put uh, 100% trade and non trade barriers in today's language and they said you can trade with us we don't want anything from you because all that is needed in the world we already have <laughs> but you definitely want to trade with us and gain access to our market so if you want to do that accept that we are the only ones in the world did the british accept it the britishers <laughs> accepted it initially uh, and then you and know and then we had the opium wars <laughs> yeah, yes. 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 the century of humiliation All right. but the, the chinese world order also extends beyond that right it has a tributary system yeah. one of the reasons they thought everyone else beyond the system were barbarians yes. so as to speak yeah. so broadly you could say chinese world order was it divided the 
what do you call the earth into two things one is civilization and one is non civilization civilization is people who are at least cynicized to some extent all others are non civilization like they don't just exist they chinese were not bothered about them and in the civilization also there were you know uh, idea of a rock civilization and a cooked civilization mm-hmm. and all those concepts very interesting ones but what this idea meant is there was some a concept called the tianxia which is everything under the heavens mm-hmm. so idea was that everything that is civilized etc is under this king the chinese emperor and you have to accept this uh, matter of fact like if mm. you question it then we will go after you so this was the idea of the chinese world order and in that view i think the reason why they called themselves the middle kingdom was because they were directly under heaven and everybody else so just people around them tributaries and they didn't deserve to be treated as equals yeah so you become a tributary if you accept that the chinese kingdom is the only emperor in this world and then you can have a trading relationship with them so that's how it sort of spread you know and mm. that's how the tianxia uh, idea just spread that's how you had many tributaries so in that sense uh, the chinese the ancient chinese world view assumed that there was only one supreme emperor the idea of a natural state of being where you have multiple kingdoms who exist and who have parallel legitimacy was alien to them. yes yes right? it has to be just one yes, and then exactly. and and some of those filter down to today right the idea of the one han identity even though it's an entirely constructed uh, population uh, different ethnicities different historicities have gone in that again stems from that right we are one nation one people one state yes absolutely Yeah. So is that why at a very fundamental level the idea of two chinas just bugs them even beyond the idea that there's this taiwan and an old uh, adversary who's there in an island somewhere Yeah yeah that's true. so the entire chinese experience over the last 50 years has been about managing diversity or not let suppressing diversity to the extent that it doesn't become a problem for the leadership so for example mandarin is the only language which is spoken in china now they call other languages dialects dialects okay and those are completely mutually unintelligible languages there were more than 100 of them they have just said no there is one language which was spoken in beijing and that should be the language across uh, china so that's just one example of how that has that's played like out saying kannada is a dialect of tamil <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's like saying kannada is a dialect of hindi which would make more ex- <laughs> heads explode all right so this was the chinese world view anirudh what were some of the others what was uh how are indians thinking about oh, the world thank you so much for asking me that question because some of the other research i do is actually about this um so i'm sure that a lot of our listeners are already familiar with kautilya right so in the kautilyan world view um it's centered around a king who is not called the son of heaven or the supreme emperor or whatever he's just called the vijigishu which means the conqueror right so his neighbor is his enemy because he wants to conquer right which makes the neighbor's neighbor his friend because think just think about this for the neighbor's neighbor he himself is the vijigishu right which makes the initial vijigishu we started with his ally mm. and this goes on in concentric circles right so there's allies of allies and enemies of enemies and neighbors of neighbors of neighbors and neighbors and none of these are seen as being inherently superior or more legitimate than any other one So of course Kautilya has classifications where he says you know the neutral king the middle king and so on and so forth but the fundamental idea that he's playing with in the Arthashastra is that any king can go and conquer anybody else if he has the power and if you try this to the broader indian civilizational world view it's a little similar to the chinese in the sense that we have the sacred geography that is within the indian subcontinent So it's it's very often asked as to why Indian kings didn't really leave the subcontinent it's not because they weren't interested in going outside the subcontinent but because there was no reason for them to if you look at the middle ages you guys have heard of the rashtrakutas so they're this kingdom that centered in maharashtra and karnataka and they're obsessed with kanauj in north india the reason being that kanauj used to be the capital of this chap called harshavardhana and it's considered to be a symbol of imperial power hmm. So you don't prove your imperial credentials by conquering the whole subcontinent. All you do is that you go to Kanauj. Hmm. That's it. And and this happened later with Delhi, right? 
Yes. So if you do rule Delhi, you rule Hindustan. Exactly. And the Mughals, the Lodhis, the various, uh, the the Ibaks and uh, various people did this. Uh, another important part in this Indian and Chinese worldviews are both were basically regional orders in a sense that no, both of them didn't aspire to conquer the whole world. Or they thought they were the whole world. Right? Yeah, they thought. So they were not bothered about. So Indian, whatever uh, the Vijigishu's realm was supposed to be the Indian subcontinent. So mm-hmm. his primary obsession was just to bring the entire subcontinent under one rule. But not beyond the subcontinent, no, it was not even mm-hmm. considered. Similarly, the Chinese didn't even consider the other world as civilization. Mm-hmm. So they were also not bothered about it. Mm-hmm. Now that changes. Now there is another world order which comes into being after that, which we must discuss is the Islamic worldview. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now the Islamic world order was very different. It mm-hmm. was aspiring to be global in nature and like okay. the other two. In fact, uh, it is... Islam was at once a religion, a multi-ethnic super-state and a new world order. All three rolled into one. All right. Okay. So, it, the Islamic idea was uh, quite uh, interesting. So, there was this one area which was called the Darul Islam, which okay. is the realm of peace. Hmm. Why was it realm of peace? Because it was already conquered. The religion of peace was already there. It was conquered. There was Islam there. And it was governed by the caliphate. And these, the idea was that only under a caliphate and the principles which are there in the Quran, you can actually achieve peace. So these were, Darul Islam was a region where this had already happened. Outside this Darul Islam was this region called the Darul Harb, which was regions where Islam wasn't the dominant region. And but the idea, Islam was present. Yeah. So there is, a, there is another Darul Sulah, a third one in this which where there is Islam but the, there is a temporary peace which exists with the Darul Islam but the idea was similar that ultimately the world entire world should be Darul Islam okay. that was the idea so it was a global world order in a sense hmm. that uh, because and the idea was that those outside this Darul Islam because Islam hadn't reached them completely, that was not a realm of peace. They were mm-hmm. still backward. They had not realized the truth. And that's why Darul Islam had to spread. So this was an Islamic world order which dominated. So what's the idea of the Ummah? Yeah, so Ummah is, is similar, right? It's is Darul the Islam? global state. It's okay. the uh, the state which exists because of conquering uh, all this. So, so, so Ummah was the goal. Uh, of uh, Islam and yes. the, the expansion Islam. of the Ummah was yes yes okay so but coming back to India so the idea was that multiple powers existing simultaneously was considered legitimate yes right and in uh, not within India like as in they were legitimate but ultimately the Vijigishu had to the yeah, the aim to was to conquer. Yes. But even the conquests that Indian kings undertook, right? If you look at the expansion of Chinese empires, you generally see that they set up an administration, they take over it because they can obviously do the job better than the barbarians can. Mm. But an Indian king who goes about conquering, he defeats his rival, but then accepts him as a vassal. He doesn't he doesn't expunge his administration. He he admits that this guy has some degree of sovereignty, but he is the suzerain. Okay. And of course, this power and legitimacy was achieved not just by conquest, but by rituals yes. and yagas and so on. Exactly. Okay. What place of the world have we left? Europe. Europe, Europe? Yeah. Europe absolutely. Yeah. Europe is an interesting one. And in fact, the world order that we would say now or we commonly conceptualize it as of today, it stems from what happened in Europe in 1648. If we could briefly touch upon this, this before 1648, right? Because it's not like Europe mm. just discovered something in 1648. Mm. Uh, I think it's a very interesting uh, contrast with the Islamic worldview because there are a lot of similarities as well. Um, so um, if you think about the Holy Roman Empire or the the Byzantine Empire, they saw themselves as successors of the Romans, but not like the ancient pagan Roman, but rather Christian Romans, right? Mm who believed that they were the vice regents of God on earth and that they had a right to use religion to go about conquering. So they're not really that different from the Islamic worldview in that sense. Why did Europe invade the West Asia during the Crusades? Because they believed that the world should be Christian. Why did the Pope allow the Spanish and Portuguese to go out into the world to spread Christianity? Because they believed that Christianity should be the world religion. So, uh, there are a lot of similarities and you can kind of see how these two ideologies that are in close geographic proximity 
are interacting with and influencing each other and perhaps that's because uh before the world order that we now follow today the westphalian order sovereignty came from god in yes. a sense right whether you're talking about the chinese or the islamic world view or even your byzantine empire you or was, indians or indians hmm. um you were a representative of god on earth yes. so and therefore it was your duty to go yeah. out uh, so that's perhaps one major change that exactly. happened so then now we should come to a, something which was quite the opposite which was hmm. this westphalian order yeah. right hmm. so and the fantastic part is the westphalian order was quite different from all these orders in the sense that it said that it recognized sovereignty over domestic affairs of a particular state it recognized that all states are at least nominally equal in international law irrespective mm. of the size the shape that they have mm. fundamentally different right uh, compared mm-hmm. to all the things that we've discussed now and this wonderful idea didn't come out of some unique moral insight okay mm. it just came because there was something called the 30 years war mm. and the, there all the powers basically exhausted themselves for over 30 years mm. then they met in a series of meetings in towns around westphalia in mm. germany and then they just agreed man none of us can conquer the entire europe <laughs> even we know even you know like mm. we've done mm. this for 30 years now so let's just agree that we will not conquer each other and we'll agree to something called sovereignty or domestic affairs and certain common principles which were acceptable to a large number of people and that's how you enter this right mm. uh, if i can do a shapeless plug mm. uh, in episode 42 we have ameya nayak who talks to us about sovereignty okay. how what the westphalian idea of sovereignty was and how that has become further strengthened today right i mean today sovereignty to us also means that you have control over borders and movement mm. of people mm. which is not necessarily something which was in the westphalian idea i mean yep. people could still move their nationality was whatever it was right yep. and that's changed okay yep. so so you have this westphalian world view where now you legitimately acknowledge other powers and their mm. sovereignty and then you will still try to conquer here and there but uh, otherwise you try and leave them alone Hmm. right yeah. but you have some principles right like non interference for example so that, that's what the legitimacy of the order is based on hmm. and and the power on which is based is the balance of power between all these european states that are unable to conquer each other so when you have somebody who who upsets the balance of power you see the entire order being shaken up and a great example of this is napoleon bonaparte so he's immensely powerful but nobody really accepts him as a legitimate emperor of france so his career wraps up in pretty short order and is replaced with the concert of europe which is a balance of power between all the major european powers so is it right to say then that any world order tries to preserve itself that the incumbents in a world order hmm. it makes sense for them to protect the existing absolutely. order absolutely uh, yeah. right so yeah. in this case napoleon was his upstart he had all this power hmm. but the existing powers in the westphalian system all ganged up to get rid of this exactly. right because he was not playing by the rules established by them hmm. we see that even today right you have the un you have the permanent five members you have the pretty much the same members who control who have uh, highest voting rights in the world bank and imf yes and you have to play by their rules yeah pavan actually that's precisely how we understand a changing world order or when we say the world order is changed what are the factors which actually go into changing a world order are exactly these so going back to our legitimacy power economics framework we are saying that the world has changed because there's a change in these three things why do we say legitimacy has changed we say legitimacy has changed because one way uh, the legitimacy can change is the countries which actually uphold a particular world order if they don't agree to the same principles they are going across touting uh, across the world is when you would say they are no longer legitimate what are they saying and they are not themselves sure. example of this is us talking about free trade and then imposing hmm. uh, trade tariffs on china and a whole lot of other countries yeah, right yeah. so that is when legitimacy breaks down power shifts have, have been happening since uh, you m- mentioned about uh, the p- permanent five and all that the power shifts have been happening since then and those which were the most powerful back then are no longer the most powerful ones now even though china was there uh, in p5 earlier but 
now china is probably the second most important state uh, india is the one very important state germany is an important state and lots state. of states are clamoring to be in this sort of permanent yeah, membership yeah, right for this reason clamoring yeah they are clamoring uh, but essentially what that says is that the power as it is represented in mm-hmm. that order is no longer uh, it doesn't represent reality as it exists mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. okay now, so let me try to understand this mm-hmm. so supposing you have this one setup where you have the un you have a security council you have five permanent members mm. who are nuclear weapon states legitimate nuclear weapon states uh if there are three four countries who are trying to also become permanent members mm. then they are trying to just improve themselves within that world order right mm. as opposed to someone like china coming out and saying yeah i might be in the unsc and so on but i will just downgrade that entire setup mm. and i'll create a shanghai cooperation organization i'll run all my business there i'll not even bother the un with mm. things i will set up you know what they've done with the obor right yes. one belt one road mm. we will set up our own courts to settle disputes so they are creating a parallel order yes right? yes so exactly. that's the difference between yeah. the two they they are creating a sinocentric order in which a currently it is regional order in that sense where it is asian uh, in- infrastructure bank Haan, there is an rci right. there is sco but ultimately the idea is that why not become the most powerful ones the world order should be determined by us if we are the most powerful ones why should us be the one hmm. okay. all right that makes sense but you know prana there's a lot of talk about how uh the world order is changing us is not legitimate anymore if we had a world order that was led by china it would be a better world order mm. right mm. is that necessarily true uh from an indian point of view that is absolutely false okay the way i would put it is you no know, many times even i hear this argument that uh, you know us is a hypocrite us mm. behaves in hypocritical manner china also behaves in hypocritical manner so so what like india can still continue to be what it is this mistakes uh, a fundamental understanding of this world order now think of it this way the what is the current new world order what are the principles which are considered to be legitimate hmm. free trade hmm. plural plurality yeah uh, then democracy democracy, democracy fundamental uh, rights fundamental rights right none of these are things which india has conflicts with right we all uh, aspire to uh, uphold these in fact mm-hmm. india itself is an example of a plural order in a regional sense right so there is no conflict with this when us violates this we of course raise our voice and the, every state does so currently there's a norm and the norm mm-hmm. is Uh, fits very well to what india desires as well and when us deviates from that norm we keep questioning why you the us is deviating but when china becomes let's say we ca- imagine a sinocentric world that norm itself changes completely okay so we were talking about how plurality is not a big deal in china right so then you would have uh, a, a norm for the world order which would be against pluralism it might be uh, uh, against democracy definitely against them it will probably elevate authoritarianism all these go against what india what is in india's yogakshema or interest right so that's why if we have a sinocentric world order it will be really bad for india hmm. so there might also be elements of mercantilism like sort of new mercantilism in the chinese model right hmm. i mean we are seeing that already with hambantota in sri lanka and elsewhere we will finance everything if you go under then we'll buy you over and the state has such a large role to play uh um uh, sort of overseeing the private sector and controlling it mm. which is again very different from what india has right india has a private sector which is which is sort of leading on most uh, counts very similar to the united states absolutely yeah so all these will be the new norms and none of these i can't even figure out one norm which you know sort of agrees to what indian uh, thinking and indian strategic thought has been so it's going to be a really tough time we are not we won't be left with this questioning us uh, because they have not upheld a norm the norms itself will be so harmful for india that we'll be in deep trouble and we can't even question china for fear of what they might do yeah the questioning is out of the <laughs> it's out of the question yeah. we have to uh, accept the mandate of heaven yes <laughs> even though it's <laughs> a communist government yeah. <laughs> so um uh, thanks pranay uh, anirudh can you give us a little bit of a glimpse of 
the like maybe one or two world orders that you've imagined in the future and sort of how india can behave in that so like right now we discussed a xenocentric uh, world order hmm. anything else um if i could bring it back to the conversation we were having about westphalia let's just talk about this digital westphalia idea that we had right um does is, does anybody here have an idea of why china is so interested in africa right now what do they get out of africa raw materials what raw materials rare earths okay so china and manoj probably could could talk about this a lot more authoritatively but china really really has a clear vision in mind for what they want to do with technology they understand that the global distribution of resources is not the same they understand that disruption is inevitable and they're preparing for it so the case that we are making is that india lives in the same world that china does we know that a disruption is inevitable and we need to prepare for it and i think the digital westphalia scenario really helps clarify our thinking on the matter so to reiterate the digital westphalia is is a world which is a, where geoeconomics is shaped by the great disruption in geopolitics we are living in a multipolar world so no one world power is more powerful than any others we are going to be in a situation where india is going to struggle with massive job losses since let's face it we are not one of the most innovative economies in the world right now and one of the suggestions we have is that to cope with this india needs to be extremely aggressive about investing in r&d and it has to be innovative about it right so like let foreign universities set up campus here uh, invest in skilling of the workforce as much as possible and if necessary I mean, just to protect ourselves from job loss we might even want to consider temporarily raising a few trade barriers before eventually opening up when our industries are mature enough to compete and just, just if you think about the broader structure of the world uh, at least for me as as a bit of a history nerd it's very similar to the 18th and 19th centuries where countries that have massive technological edges over the rest of the world are going to go out and try to use these other countries for nothing more than economic growth right so just as the europeans use gunpowder to essentially turn india and china into colonies and markets you would see something similar in a great disruption scenario where where countries that have the best ip the best technology would have a massive edge over countries that don't so what india could do is form an alliance of tech, of of countries that are less technologically advanced maybe use it as a market sharing or market access sort of block to negotiate with the more advanced countries in order to safeguard our national interests and coming back to the discussion we are having about resources india especially a disruption scenario is very good for india because it means we can achieve our security objectives at less cost so invest in in smart or sharp power right i'm not sure what the exact ir term for that is but basically invest in cyber warfare shift from having a massive human army to maybe a robotic army shift to from firepower to cyber power something like that and um, especially shift towards the indian ocean so um, africa as i said has plenty of rare earths so does tibet incidentally but we clearly can't do anything about that but investing in a larger naval presence investing in resource extraction consortiums building up a sovereign wealth fund to acquire innovative startups across the world right it means that india is going to have to think big and think smart to really defend our national interest and and this is a future where uh which is building up on a present where we what spend less than 1.5% of uh the gdp as public expenditure on research yeah, exactly uh i think private sector research less than 1% of gdp so we are not necessarily in the best of places right now to manage this particular Correct. scenario that's okay. why what we done was so imagine uh, the exercise is basically two axes right one was politics economics at the intersection you have 25 worlds so in for each of these worlds we did three things one try to imagine how this world would look like second how would this affect india third what should india be doing in order to safeguard its interests so what you just said fits into the second question how will this affect india and we realize there are some of these scenarios which we were you know really uh, uh, antithetical to india's interests they were not at all positive some of the scenarios were actually sort of midway and some of them were very positive so uh, then what we did is combined the initiatives that need to be taken in each of these uh, so that irrespective of where we the world goes we don't want to predict the world that stuff you know 
many people have gotten it wrong so but irrespective of the world where the world goes if we are able to do these certain set of in- initiatives like moving from firepower to cyberpower from uh, uh, from a territorial army to a naval superpower uh, then encouraging foreign universities etc these were scenarios that came across in all the scenarios or most number of scenarios and things that we should be doing irrespective of where the world goes okay okay so let's say the world is going to be the world tomorrow we will open the studio doors and it will change drastically apart from these thing uh, these three things what else should india be doing irrespective to deal with the world tomorrow so how we went about building this was uh, just to build on what pranay was saying we looked at what india should be doing for each of these 20 scenarios and we collected the recommendations that appear most frequently all right and we've used that to build our action portfolio so let me just briefly talk about what exactly is in this portfolio so we've divided our actions for india into two broad headings uh, the first are domestic and the second are foreign facing reforms domestically we believe that um, liberalization is something that india has to do because getting fdi getting investment is vital for our growth but we should not focus only on economic growth considering the way that our demography is going to change over the next few decades creating jobs is going to be a major challenge so job growth might at times be more important for us than just economic growth we also need to build a social security net because right now india is an overwhelmingly young country right we have people who can work but in a few decades the population that cannot work and that needs to be taken care of is going to be larger and larger which means we need to have social security and we should start building it right away and yeah those social security net will, might be very different from how we imagine it today what's a social right? security net so social security net would be examples uh, would be unemployment insurance or thing okay. that All is right. what we think of it now but hmm. tw- because our exercise over the next 25 years we <coughs> might have to think of areas let's say if can i give you vouchers so that you can take up courses to hmm. change your skill set you hmm. know hmm. things hmm. like that hmm. so those are really specific things which we this is a broad exercise but hmm. we need to think of new social security nets as well all right is basically yes um, just if i could start mm-hmm. the social security idea we we call it a human capital approach to social security and this is an idea that's been spoken about in academic circles for a while but the idea is to see each citizen as a potential economic resource and invest in them so they can maximize their potential for the country oh so coming back to the foreign facing reforms that we talked about uh, so three critical military shifts are needed from land to sea so moving from a territorial navy to becoming a naval superpower especially in the indian ocean region um from the physical to the virtual right so we need to be investing in cyber warfare and moving from manpower to firepower so we have one of the largest armies in the world if not the largest i think we need to be shifting to having more firepower we still use world war 2 era weapons which is fairly ridiculous for a country that aims to be a regional superpower we also need to champion the cause of globalization because the movement of labor and goods is really critical to our growth um, in terms of the of geopolitics we need to retain flexibility in terms of alignment so this is something that india has historically been pretty good at we haven't really signed up onto the american you know global alliance we haven't really signed on to the chinese the alliance that trying to build we believe that we must to in order to safeguard our national interest we have to retain flexibility so if that means tying up with russia tying up with iran if it's in the national interest then so be it and finally be open to partnering with other middle powers especially those concerned by g2 dominance right so it's almost inevitable in our view over the next few decades that the us and china are going to be global superpowers and it's also inevitable that there are going to be other middle powers that are concerned about it yeah that's a fascinating thing when you talked about middle powers uh, pavan the australia actually recently released an india economic strategy 2035 Okay. I don't think India has an India economic strategy. <laughs> okay. But they have released and they have tried to uh, so it's some Australia is a middle power which will be important for us in the next 25 years and they have actually made really good recommendations about how Australia should engage specific states in India and which mm-hmm. are the states to engage and things like that. So that is a s- similar mirror exercise is what we need to do to engage some of these middle powers. Right because India engaging Australia means Queensland engaging 
see the idea the pursuit of power again is not just for the sake of it right the, what is important is what you do with that power and that's why what we are trying to argue is if india let's say is the most powerful world power if it brings the principles on which the indian republic is based on across the world that is ideas of pluralism freedom uh, the respecting an individual and things like that if those are brought to the fore by india then india being a world power is beneficial to the entire world so that is what we are aspiring for uh, and if india itself goes in the in an opposite direction and india disbands the principles on which uh, the indian republic is based then maybe india being the most powerful uh, state in the world might not be in the world's interest <laughs> or even in indians interest. and and the primary purpose of this at least as being slightly selfish indians is that it's for the prosperity of all of us right not some abstract power for the state hmm. but for the prosperity and well-being of indians absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. the peace and prosperity of indians yes, is yeah so on that note uh, thank you so much yeah thank you guys thanks man thanks thank anil that's it for today's show if you're interested in reading up about today's discussion You can check out the discussion document that Pranay and Anirudh have authored called Deriving India Strategies for a New World Order which is available on the website of the Takshashila Institution that is www.takshashila.org.in Anirudh has also written an article about it on the Pragati website at www.thinkpragati.com You can listen to the Pragati podcast on the IBM podcast app or wherever you get your podcast from were there everywhere every week comes a show where three people come together to tell you about stuff they like a movie a tv show a book and other stuff Tune in every Monday on the IVM podcast app to IVM likes. Batman approves this message. Thank you, Batman. Hello there. My name is Naveen Narona and as a gay person in India, I get asked a lot of stupid questions. A beta is it LGBT or eligibility? How do two men procreate? Bro is grinder better than Tinder award. We answer all these questions and much more on my podcast Keeping It Queer where I talk to individuals from the LGBT community in India and learn about their personal stories. Catch all the episodes on the IBM podcast app or any other podcasting app you like. Till then, keep it queer. <laughs>